Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. I'm Seth Harris, a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change at Northeastern University. Um, if this is your first time visiting the blog, you picked a good one. Goodness gracious, you picked a really, really good one. This is the second of our Labor Day blogcast series. We we interviewed Jennifer Abruzzo, the uh, general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board just before Labor Day, and that's posted on the blog. I encourage you to take a look at this. But today, we've got a very, very important labor leader uh, to talk with you. Uh, Liz Schuler, the president of the AFL-CIO, is on the Power at Work blog. And uh, this is a really, I think, important and worthwhile interview. Um, you know, Liz has been in and around the labor movement for a very long time. She started her career as an organizer. She tells a story about her earliest organizing uh, experience, was hired on as an organizer at the IBEW and stayed with the IBEW for a long time, was elected secretary treasurer of the AFL-CIO in 2009 and became uh, first the acting president or the president of the AFL-CIO prior to being elected when uh, former President Rich Trumka passed away and then was elected by the Executive Council of the AFL-CIO um, in August of 2022. Uh, so she's only been in office for a little over a year, uh, but she has a tremendous amount to say about the progress that's been made, the moment that we are in, the moment of worker activism, worker militancy, worker organizing, collective bargaining. Um, and I think it's it's really worth hearing, not just because she's the president of the AFL-CIO, but because she knows a lot and she's experienced a lot and she has a lot of insight into this moment for working people. And there's a tremendous amount going on right now. We still have two strikes underway in Hollywood. In nine days from today, we're recording this Monday, September 4th. Uh, sorry, Tuesday, September 5th, the day after Labor Day, which is Monday, September 4th. Um, nine days from today is the deadline for the UAW and their negotiations with the big three. Possibility of a strike happening there. As Liz mentioned, there are strikes going on with nurses and strikes going on with bakery workers and others around the country right now. We still don't have a contract at Starbucks, still no contract at Amazon. We talked about that a little bit. Um, and uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the clean energy economy, which has been a big focus of uh, President Schuster since she became Schuler since she became president, um, and organizing the AFL-CIO's role in organizing, uh, the importance of the affiliates investing more and focusing more on organizing, working collectively to go after entire industries or entire regions. Um, an extremely important discussion uh, that we needed to have around Labor Day. Of course, President Schuler's traveling around the country right now, meeting with all kinds of workers, talking about all kinds of issues. Uh, she mentions having been with AFSCME and being with UAW and being with uh, uh, some other unions. Uh, she had to rush off of this interview, I think, to go to Hartford, Connecticut. Um, so she's in demand, and it was very generous of her to make time for you and for the Power at Work blog. Um, you know, usually I use this time to talk a little bit about the news and analyze and offer my opinions on some of the topics that are that are, are kicking around right now in labor news. But honestly, this interview is the labor news of the moment. 
take a look at this interview and and watch the president of the AFL-CIO make news by talking about how working people can make their lives better. I, I really encourage you to do that. Now, this is not the last of our series of Labor Day blogcasts. We have at least one more coming, maybe two. I want to encourage you, keep a close eye on the Power at Work blog for those other interviews. Uh, uh, and if, if you haven't already subscribed, that's the way you can avoid missing great content like these Labor Day blogcasts. Uh, so give us your email address. In return, what we'll do is send you the weekly download, uh, which is a collection of more than a dozen articles and stories and opinion pieces and videos and studies and academic papers on a whole host of topics relating to workers and worker power and unions. We'll also send you a weekly newsletter, which is the way we can keep you updated on the uh, long list of items of content that we're adding to this blog all the time. Um, there's a lot of material on this blog and take a look at the blogcasts, at the podcasts, at the posts. Um, but subscribe, and that's the way that we can stay in touch with you. Uh, so I'm not going to waste any more time. I want to get straight to this terrific interview that we did with Liz Schuler. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Well, so I'll say to you what I just said to you off camera. Thank you so much for being here on the Power at Work blog. Um, we're so delighted to be able to talk to you one day after Labor Day. That's that's your big day. I mean, were you were you traveling all over the place? Did you have a bunch of different events yesterday? I like to say it's our Super Bowl because yes, we were really owning it this week. Um, we say it's not just Labor Day, but Labor Week because uh, we did some lead-in events and I did a State of the Union's speech that kind of kicked things off on Tuesday and then traveling all over the place, both Fred Redman, our secretary treasurer and I leading into the actual day. And then in fact, I'm leaving tonight for Hartford, Connecticut um, after rallying with Unite Here members down the street at the Socatel Hotel. I'll be joining AFSCME up in Connecticut um, and then uh, rounding out the week. So it's, it's been busy. <laughs> well, we're, we're in the sport, spirit of that. We have four big blogcasts. We did one with uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, and we've got a couple of others with union presidents coming up. But you're, you're our star. You're our star. Uh, so I, I, let me start with maybe the most obvious question, the question that I get asked all the time um, uh, on TV and by the by the uh, by the media, um, there is a widespread perception that we are seeing more worker activism, more more worker militancy, more worker organizing than we've seen in many many years. Um, do you think that perception's accurate? And if it is, what do you think's going on? Why is it happening? Well, I think it is accurate and um, we're seeing a resurgence like we haven't seen in a very long time. People um, out in the public have seen unions fighting for them because as you know, we don't just fight for union members, we fight for working people broadly. And coming out of the pandemic, I mean, it started before the pandemic, but just the sense that you know people were working more with less, um, not being given the respect and dignity that they deserve, not having a voice in their workplace circumstances, um, having precarious work environments and unpredictable schedules and um, just being fed up <laughs> pretty broadly uh, with watching companies make record profits and then not really seeing that translate into their paycheck. And 
So no matter what industry you're in, you're seeing workers taking risks and saying enough is enough. And whether that's in the form of a strike, which we've been seeing, of course, um, you know, with our SAG-AFTRA and our Writers Guild siblings, um, you know, nurses and uh, bakery workers. I mean, there are people on strike uh, right now, uh, but it also comes in various forms where people are, you know, walking out or um, penning uh, sign-on letters to their bosses. I mean, it, it really is this notion of collective action being powerful. And it just so happens people are finally connecting the dots that being in a union is the best way to channel that collective voice and actually make the change that you want to see in your workplace. Yeah, I so I couldn't agree with that more. And um, I, my, I, I love that you focused on the pandemic because one of the things that I have been saying to folks is that one of the lessons that the pandemic taught workers is you can't trust your boss to treat you right. You can't rely on your boss. You're better off relying on the people on either side of you and behind you in order to make your life better. Those are the people who are in the same circumstances as you understand it better and are more willing to fight alongside you to get you what's right. The boss's job is to make money often off of you, not necessarily to do the right thing for you, which turns us to your absolutely favorite topic, uh, which is organizing. Right. And your first job in the labor movement was as an organizer for the IBEW. Um, and I think, tell me if I'm wrong about this. I think your first assignment or one of your first assignments was to organize a unit in which your mother was an employee. Do I have that right? Well, yes, my mom and I actually were organizers together because I worked at the same company she and my dad worked. Uh, it was a local electric utility company. And it was back in the day, remember when people used to go to work for a place and generations of people <laughs> yeah. worked there? It was like a family. Um, the company saw it that way where there was this sort of implied deal, right? That if we do well, you do well. And so when I worked there as a clerical worker um, and my mom also worked in the office, the power linemen were in the union and the office workers were not. And the power linemen almost entirely men. And my guess is the office workers overwhelmingly women. You got it. You know these things. Um, so the, the <laughs> way the, the power linemen were seen and heard and they had influence, they almost had this kind of swagger, you know, when they walked around the building because they knew that, you know, they had that union backing them. Um, they had an attitude. They just, they knew that if something went wrong, they had a, a way to fix it. And with the office workers, it was the opposite. It was, you know, you should be glad that you have this job. You should be, feel lucky that you get to work at this place where, you know, um, we've got, we've had generations of people working in the past and had done well. And then it just started pivoting into this point where we were taken for granted. We, you know, we're, were disrespected when we'd raise things. It was, oh, you're being a problem child or, oh, why don't you just, you know, sit down and be quiet and get back to work. Um, and, and so the office workers said, well, hey, why not join the same union that the power linemen are in? And we could actually, you know, have a union that was in, across the entire footprint of the company and we could all be in it together. That's the, that's the idea, right? And so we tried to organize and um, the company came back at us with, all the union busting tactics that we see today, which, you know, having private one-on-one -on -one meetings and trying to divide 
um, the group, um, instilling fear by, you know, firing just one or two of the organizers that were the most active um, un trade union people. Um, you know, all kind of captive audience meetings, we had everybody packed into the auditorium so they could tell us how bad it would be to be in a union. <laughs> so unfortunately, that campaign failed. I, I want to say it wasn't a failure per se, because I learned so much throughout that campaign. And that inspired me into a life of activism. And that's what um, essentially became my career, because I then went on to work for the local union, which said, you know what, we could use someone like you. We have a lot of women office workers and other utility companies. We want to go out and organize. So why not um, hire and use women as organizers to organize the you know units that we're, we're looking at? So that's kind of how I got my start. Uh, but it was a real important lesson in that, you know, coming together collectively, um, bargaining for your fair share, that all happens when you have a union contract Yeah, and that there are so many workers out there who need that same uh, respect, that protection, um, safe workplaces, all of it that don't have that voice. And so it was a very stark contrast for me personally. And, you know, I want everyone to be able to experience what it's like to have a union job. Well, so let's talk about exactly that. Your, just as almost like it's a full circle, your first major policy change as the president of the AFL-CIO after you're elected was to get the affiliates to vote to tax themselves to give money to the AFL-CIO to create an organizing fund. So what is the AFL's role going to be in organizing because most of the organizing is done or all the organizing is done by the affiliates so what's the afl's role going to be with this pot of money that the affiliates i don't know how willingly they gave it to you but they agreed to give it to you that you've now got this fund what are you going to do with it so the uh fund as you call it is actually to um has we've stood up the center for transformational organizing the cto mm -hmm. for short um which is essentially a hub for the best organizers, the best and brightest strategists to come together and look at multi-sectoral um, campaigns. And how do we bring together unions across an industry, for example, that we can all land on together or across a geography that we can all land on together. And we're starting with the clean energy economy. And we know that with all of these amazing investments coming down the pike with the Biden administration and what we've seen with uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, with the clean energy investments, the um, chips and science legislation, the infrastructure bill, that there are going to be a whole lot of good union jobs that are going to be growing. And it, particularly in places like the South, where it's right to work, there are very few unions. So we're going to need all of our muscle join together to invest um, and grow uh, the union job potential that we're gonna see. So we're starting with one particular sector, EV batteries, which um, we know has a lot of promise. And it also means there are a lot of different unions looking at organizing in that sector. So the idea here is that we use our resources, our scale, uh, come together collectively um, and land on a strategy that's going to grow the labor movement for everybody and create 
good jobs in communities that have traditionally not had the opportunity to join a union. Um, and that's one of the things Fred and I are focused on daily as we wake up thinking about organizing growth, opening our doors wider than ever to working people uh, who may have been on the sidelines in the past and in particular like communities we're talking about in the South where um, you know, unions really haven't had a footprint. So um, this is the way we, we hope to do it. So is it your sense that in addition to the money that they're giving to the AFL, that affiliates are ramping up their organizing efforts? Are presidents and organizing directors telling you, hey, we're going to increase our, uh, our organizing budget from X to 2x or x plus y or we're we're shifting resources that were on politics and it's going to go into organizing more workers what's your sense of the affiliates response to this seemingly huge demand for unions among working people that's out there today well everyone's talking about this is the moment and uh, i think it is we our convention last year that was our theme right the movement to meet the moment because this is a set of circumstances that has come together in a way that we haven't seen in generations, where you have working people rising up in big numbers and taking chances, taking risks. Um, you have uh, this administration, which says the word union more than I do. Uh, it's the most <laughs> pro-union administration in our lifetime. So we have the bully pulpit. We have the policymakers on our side. Um, and we have the public on our side. We just released some data last week uh, that, you know, two thirds of the American public are pro-union and 88% of young people under the age of 30 are pro-union. So if we're not taking advantage of this moment in time to, you know, double down on organizing and growth in ways that we never have before, trying new things, taking some risks, um, then when will we? So that's what the CTO is inspiring. But of course, like you said, each affiliate union has um, it, its own set of investments that it makes uh, individually too, right? And so they're, they're really thinking through their strategies. And then our job at the Federation is to say, how can we bring uh, unions together to maximize impact? And yeah. we, have, you know, we know resources are finite uh, and it, it's hard work to, to organize, right? So uh, we wanna make sure that we're bringing the best strategies, the best research, um, and really setting the table for success. And so, yes, the affiliate unions are, are focused on organizing. The one thing that I'm seeing that's different is we have, um, we're organizing in places that we didn't think were possible in the past. Uh, industries and sectors that are largely non-union and have always traditionally been non-union are starting to see movement. And so give us give us an give an example give us an example yeah, about that. Everybody's everybody's familiar with like Starbucks, where yeah. you know you you know fast casual whatever that's called sure, coffee sure. house casual. That has not been a union sector. But give us give us some other examples that that you're talking about with some of the affiliates. Yeah, sure. I would point to you know in the tech sector, for example, we've got um, uh, folks organizing with our CWA Code CWA in new bargaining units that you know we never thought possible with tech workers we've got video game designers who are working in conditions that are not dissimilar to other industries that have had to uh, fight for safety protections and you know fair scheduling and not to have to work 
uh, forced overtime. And, you know, it's the sort of same environment that we've seen with many of our unions over time where um, that's why a union uh, made them into good jobs, right? As we had to force those employers to actually behave and come to the table and treat workers with respect and, um, you know, fairly with justice. Um, cannabis, that's another industry that I've been watching just because it's a growing industry. Got to go with the pun, you know. I, um, I, I forgive you. I forgive yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. For... Um, but I met with a group up in New Jersey that was just so inspiring. Um, they were... Um, just not only professionals, you know, their their skills and their knowledge in the industry, but also just dedicated trade unionists. Uh, they discovered that, you know, with a union comes power. And I remember talking with this bud tender who, um, you know, had a craft and was, as I said, a professional and was talking about how unfair it was that the industry was demanding non-disclosure agreements. And that, um, you know, that they couldn't transport their skills if they wanted to go work somewhere else in a way that um, that they owned. And so that was something that that she wanted her union, you know, to be active and um, and that they wanted to bring into the collective bargaining process because they said that's just blatantly unfair. Um, So I think, you know, those are a couple of examples. But um, really, like I said, with the young people, um, the interest in. you know, uh, clean energy and climate and how we're not going to make this transition without uh, people seeing that there's good jobs at, you know, the end of that, that transition. So we've actively engaged in, um, you know, the offshore wind industry and the solar industry and uh, making sure that if you're going to leave a job that has traditionally been providing a family wage for decades and decades, then you are going to transition into a new job in the clean energy economy that will provide a decent living and a path forward for you and your family. Because if if people don't see it, then we're not going to, uh, you know, get people to take that leap of faith and move this country forward in the way we need to. Yeah, and that's not just an issue. We're talking about that issue in the context of the UAW negotiations with the big three right now, but that's an issue for folks in who are in the traditional fossil fuel industry who are looking at much lower paying jobs in solar and hydro and other places. You know, nuclear, those jobs are good quality jobs, many of them union jobs, but we also have to make sure that offshore wind and other energy generation facilities are going to have good quality union jobs. There have been some successes there. There have been some project labor agreements there. Some of the maritime unions have done a good job of organizing in that sector. But there's a lot of big issues for a lot of very big unions that are really genuinely worried about it. But I want to pick up on, I I knew you were going to talk about young people before I could get to it, because I know this is a big passion of yours. And and I know that when you came in as secretary treasurer, that was one of the issues you took on right away. Is organizing. 2009. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been, yeah. it's, uh, this is, I, I don't think, I, I get the sense that that was not what, when you started worrying about this. That was when you started doing it at the AFL. That's right. But I, I want to, uh, I, I mean, you talked about these new data that the AFL produced, these survey, uh, uh, polling data, where a, a whopping, I mean, 88% of Americans don't agree about anything, and they agree that unions are a good thing. And I think the other statistic in that poll was that 65% of younger workers want a union if they can get one. They'd like to get one. So, all right, tell us. Here's your chance. We're going to break news. What is the Liz Schuler plan 
for organizing young people? Is there, is, is it different? I mean, you've done organizing, you've organized young people, you've organized people who are not so young. Is the conversation different? Is the industry focus different? How, how do you get that groundswell of support for the labor movement and turn it into union members? Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, I've been thinking about this and talking about it and mobilizing around it for, uh, gosh, almost 15 years. I am no longer a young worker. That's what the breaking <laughs> news is. Um, <laughs> you're a younger worker when yeah, you're in this conversation, at least, yeah. if that makes you feel any better. Seasoned is what we call ourselves. Yeah. Uh, young at heart. Uh, but the idea that there are all these young people out there that want to form unions, and let's face it, this generation is naturally aligned with the labor movement in so many ways. If you think about um, you know, they're civic minded, they are used to working collaboratively. I think young people, Gen Z and millennials, you know, know the power of the collective, which translates so perfectly into unions, because that's what we are. We're a collection of working people who want to make change, right? So um, they're coming together, they're uh, taking, you know, they don't have a lot to lose. I was just with a young a worker panel we did in uh, Kentucky last week. And, you know, they're, they're saying to themselves, look, my parents, I saw what happened to my parents and my grandparents, they were able to make uh, a decent living. They were able to afford a home. And now our generation is absolutely facing a dead end. You know, this economy is broken. We're having to work two and three jobs to make ends meet. Homeownership, it's laughable that, you know, with the price of um, housing in particularly in urban areas. Um, never mind this notion of, of respect and decency and really um, the important thing that came out of that, that discussion for me was this idea that we all are in it together. We need to just see each other as people and respect each other and accept each other. And that's where they're finding also, you know, the, the labor movement so refreshing is that it brings workers together across all backgrounds, across all kinds of work and geography and, you know, circumstance. And so it's very appealing. Um, but in terms of organizing, you're right, we're still facing the same barriers with broken labor laws. And you know very well, Seth, uh, how broken our labor laws are, how they're tilted on behalf of, you know, corporations who've chipped away at the protections over time. And so with the Starbucks workers, for example, they take a risk, they rise up, they organize, and then they can't get that first contract. So it's very frustrating, but it isn't stopping us. And we're going to continue to fight for labor law reform as we always have with the PRO Act and Congress. But we're also finding that, you know, young people are creative and, um, you know, over time, we have seen that young people find a way. And so we are, um, as I said, looking at all these new industries, ways to come together um, and show that the labor movement is modern, it's inclusive, it's dynamic, it's nimble and flexible and responsive to what young people see as their priorities, because often they're not the same as uh, some of the you know traditional issues that we've faced in the past. So. Um, I will say that um, we are waking up every morning at the Federation, orienting our uh, programming and our mobilizations around the issues that young people care about. So whether climate, tell us a little, tell us based on your conversation, because you spent a lot of time talking to young workers, 
what are the issues they tell you are the organizing issues of the 2020s? Well, if you think about every major issue happening to particularly this younger generation, um, all of those issues converge and run right through the labor movement. So, as I said, with, you know, climate change uh, runs right through the labor movement because we're not going to get there if we don't bring working people through this change. And the labor movement is the is positioned perfectly to, um, you know, not only help people ladder up into new jobs, but also to socialize and educate and, you know, bring people along that may be very skeptical of what this change could mean for them. Um, the issue of technology and artificial intelligence, yet another, you know, disruptive issue that is affecting work runs right through the labor movement because we are on the front lines of how these technologies are implemented in the workplace. It's the and, centerpiece. Of, it's one of the main issues in the strike in Hollywood, uh, the two strikes absolutely. that are going on in Hollywood with the Writers Guild and the, the actors. And they are front and center, absolutely, because they're in the middle of their strike. But also we've seen it in industry after industry, whether you're a hotel housekeeper, a bakery worker, uh, someone who's driving a truck. I mean, technology is already here and we're not going to stop technology. But what we're saying is you should have workers at the table. You should have a working person's voice in the decision making process, in the development process on the front end not just when it's implemented. Uh, so we're actually using the tool of collective bargaining to get working people's voices in the room and put the guardrails in place so that we're not just dehumanized and run over by technology, we're actually enabled. You make our jobs better with technology. And then if indeed we'll see some displacement, of course, that we have a plan that we are able to negotiate um, investments in workforce development and training to help people ladder up into a different type of job uh, or to make sure that we have notice periods so that we have, you know, 180 days to actually figure out what the next move is um, rather than having it land on us uh, overnight. So those are some of the thoughts and, and strategies that we're working on as far as technology is concerned. Yeah, one of the one one of the let me just uh, jump in if you don't mind. One yeah. of the one of the big issues around artificial intelligence is that the labor movement has had so many experiences where technology is created for the purpose of replacing labor, or driving down wages, or taking job functions out of people's jobs to make their jobs lower quality and therefore lower paying. And the debate or discussion, the analysis, at least in the corporate world is almost never, how can we use this to empower workers so that they can do even better, be more productive and therefore make more money? And that is, to me, one of the core failures of the studios in the Hollywood negotiations is that they viewed AI as a way to cut costs. And by cutting costs, they were gonna cut writers, they were gonna cut actors, they were gonna take advantage of actors' likenesses in perpetuity with not no compensation using AI. And it's it's not the it's not George Clooney that's gonna be AI. It's gonna be those background actors, it's gonna be those actors who are not stars, who are secondary actors. And those are the folks who are gonna end up losing what had been a middle class wage and is now just sort of a contingent worker wage. So I, I think that really is going to resonate with the workers who are most familiar with that technology. You know, the people who are using Chat GPT are not my age. They're the age of the workers that you're talking about, folks under 30 who know what's coming. They can see it. They understand what's coming. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so proud of our 
SAG-AFTRA and WGA members because they are really putting a stake in the ground for everybody. And you think about um, this is a very high profile fight, but as I said, this um, disruption, there is no job that's immune. And even our jobs, Seth, I'm so sorry, but you know, <laughs> um, we're gonna be facing too. Um, it's not just image and, and likeness, it's you know, essentially all of the backend work that can be automated. It's um, you know, thinking about how algorithms are managing how work flows. Um, I was just with some hotel um, housekeepers recently where they were actually being uh, told to clean rooms in the most inefficient way I've ever heard of because the algorithm was programmed to clean the high rollers rooms first. So it had the housekeeper ping-ponging over floors that made no sense versus cleaning in sequence, which would make a lot more sense to me. But that's this idea of algorithmic management, right? That you're taking out the human judgment factor and you're programming it in for who knows what, um, potentially always to make the company more money, as you said. Um, but you know, we have to make sure that we have technology working alongside us. And as I said, making our jobs safer, better, more productive. And by the way, we should share in the productivity gains right. that these technologies are uh, enabling. And so if you look back to a lot of the tech companies that we all know today, our tax dollars were the ones that uh, generated most of the ideas that those private sector players took off and ran with and are now making billions of dollars with. The taxpayers didn't benefit from that. Well, maybe in you know good products to buy, but um, we're thinking about this differently now. We have a chance to actually um, put the guardrails in place, get the policies in place ahead of time so that working people can benefit from this because uh, we all want a better future. We all want technology to help us work less or work smarter. Um, but if we aren't deliberately at that table with workers' voices in the room, thinking about the society that we want to build together, uh, then we'll just see more of what we're seeing now, which is inequality widening, uh, a few group, uh, you know, a handful of billionaires that are going to take off with more money, and the rest of us will be left holding the bag. Right. Uh, I, I think that's a very, very, very important point to make um, and not the discussion, I think, that's happening around a lot of technology uh, right now. OK, so we were talking about young people. This is the time of year when a lot of young people are lose, are leaving the summer jobs to go back to school. I, I want to take you back to your very your very first job before you became an organizer for the IBEW. And as I understand it, like a lot of teenagers you were a waitstaff person in a diner in your in your hometown i worked at a pizzeria in my hometown a little bit of a different experience uh but uh, during that uh time working uh in that diner you have talked about having experienced an incident of sexual harassment i'm not going to ask you about how many times you've experienced sexual harassment since then i'm guessing it's not just once in your life um uh, I've spent enough time in and around the labor movement and in and around in and around certain industries. It's unfortunately it is just a reality for women in a lot of those uh, industries. Now most diners don't have unions. I'm guessing your diner did not have a union at the time. Um, so you experienced this incident. How might that incident have played out differently if there had been a union in that workplace? 
what might you have done? Because I, I, if I've got it right, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you didn't say anything about it until much, much, much later. You didn't say anything about it in the workplace. Would yeah. it have come out differently, do you think? And why might it have come out differently? Wow, that is an interesting thought. Well, first, I'll just say yes. Um, I, like many young women, when you get your first job at the age of 16, at least that's when I started working, um, you know, you don't really know your rights. You just kind of show up and you try to blend in. And I know that I was so nervous that half the time I you know, was trying to just figure out what to do and if I was doing it correctly and so that I wouldn't get fired. That was my fear. Um, but uh, as in with many restaurant environments, you have the sort of front of house, back of house um, environment. Um, and I was in a place where we uh, pooled our tips, right, with, with everybody in the restaurant. And really, you need those tips to survive. Um, and so the, um, the situation was basically as a... Um, someone who worked in the kitchen, you know, an older man basically, uh, was just had targeted me and made my life just completely uncomfortable. And I was afraid to go to work pretty much every day. Uh, it was a summer job, thankfully. So I, I saw a light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel but um, it, it was extremely uncomfortable. And I did, I was afraid. I was afraid to say anything. And he made it clear that I couldn't say anything. Um, and then, you know, also that when you work for tips, um, you're subjected to sexual harassment from the customers as well. Right. And so I learned a lot working in a restaurant that I know, you know, women in particular uh, who work in restaurants for a living and have for their entire lives uh, could write books about this. But, um, you know, you're, you're subjected to a lot of bad behavior. Um, you, you're new. You don't really know what to expect and, and you just don't think you have a voice or you don't think you have any power. And um, I think that's what would be different if it would have been a union environment. I probably, A, would have known more about my rights. B, I would have known I could talk to somebody um, because the union would have my back. Um, and I guess C, there would be a mechanism to actually um, adjudicate, if you will, uh, you know, the situation in the workplace, whether it was talking to the, the guy who, you know, was perpetrating or, um, you know, I could file a grievance and I can have my union actually work with management to ensure that I had a safe environment. And I think I hear these stories over and over again where, um, you know, women don't feel like they can bring those kinds of complaints forward because they don't think they'll be believed. They won't be listened to. Um, and in the past, they weren't. And I would say even in some cases in a union environment, um, particularly in a male dominated one like I grew up in, um, there wasn't an awareness. There wasn't, um, uh, you know, education of our leadership even on how to deal with it. But fast forward to today, and particularly as a woman leader in the labor movement, I feel so empowered now that we can make this a priority. We can make sure that our Unions can be actually enforcement agents of the contract and making sure that, um, you know, sexual harassment and discrimination are absolutely unacceptable and that we hold people accountable. And so that is what is powerful about having a union is that you can actually, um, you know, hold people's feet to the fire when things are going wrong.
Yeah, I can, can I just say one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you about this, and thank you for that accurate, passionate, clear explanation of how it's different in a union workplace. I think that this is one of the benefits of having a union that is most undervalued, least understood by workers. Because as a 16-year-old kid, you weren't going to sue the employer because of this guy in the kitchen. And most women, not just women, but women in particular, who experience harassment, they're not going to go get a lawyer, except in the most extreme cases. So they have to bear it. But in a union environment, you have somebody in the workplace whose job it is to enforce a contract, not not the law, but the contract that protects you against discrimination. And it's not just against sexual harassment and sex discrimination, but race discrimination, disability discrimination, age discrimination, unfairness in general. And so I, 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 I hope that lots and lots and lots of women who've experienced a version and sadly, there's an endless variety of versions of what you went through, but have experienced a version of what you went through. We'll hear one of the most powerful women in America talking about it happened to me too, and a solution to your problem is a union. Because I, I really firmly believe that, and I know you, you share that view. I absolutely do. And I'm so heartened too to see so many women rising up in the labor movement because they see that and they see like you said, it's, it's an underutilized or maybe little known um, enforcement and powerful tool that women can use in the workplace when, you know, things are out of whack that, you know, the, the scales of uh, power are out of uh, alignment. And so I think to see these women rising up in leadership and um, on the front lines of a lot of these strikes and a lot of the walkouts and you know, uh, the fact that women are the ones often leading here is so exciting. Uh, and we are basically, um, you know, half the workforce now. And we are half the labor movement. And a lot, not a lot of people know that we are the largest women's organization, really, in the mm. country for working women uh, with six and a half million women in our ranks. Mm. Important, important. Yeah. Okay. Um we have been talking now it's the time when I this is the time of the interview when I tell you how wonderful you are and what a tremendous success you've been. So let's let's do it in this way. I don't want to just do that, but I want to I'm going to ask a question that's going to do that, but subtly. But now I just told everybody I'm going to do it. So here we go. Right. So unions are growing. The AFL-CIO is growing. Right. If now if I have my math right. When you became president, and for goodness sakes, you've only been the president for 14 months or something like 15 months, something in that, like that. When you became president, there were 55 affiliates of the AFL-CIO. I may, maybe I've gotten off by one or two, but I think it's right around there. A year later, there are 60 affiliates of the AFL-CIO. And it, again, I'm not a math major. I went to law school because I can't do math. That's five new affiliates. And one of them is... Uh, Speaking of women and power, women's the Women's National Basketball Players Association, the Major League Baseball Players Association, which only tripled its size or something like that when they signed up the minor leaguers, Tony Clark, a fantastic leader, and the Major League Soccer Players Association. I'm, I, I apologize that I don't have the names of the other two here. So, yay you. Now I want to know about the future. Are there discussions underway? that you're willing to share, and it's just you and me, nobody's watching, um, 
to bring other unions under the AFL-CIO umbrella right now. Let's, we can make, here's a chance to make some news. Our, our doors are open wider than ever, Seth. And uh, you're right, those examples you just mentioned, we're very proud of. Because when Fred and I took over, um, you know, we thought, this is the moment. If we're not all unified in the, in the most powerful way now, then when will we? Right. And so this notion of solidarity is a real word that we believe in strongly. Um, whether you're affiliated with the Federation or not, we fight with, you know, we fight for every worker, no matter which union you're in and if you're in our umbrella or not. But I will say, um, you know, we're working collaboratively and um, closely with with unions um, in so many facets of um, the issues that are so important right now, and particularly as we're preparing for 2024, and we know how important the upcoming elections will be, and for all of us to be aligned, working closely together, we, of course, endorsed uh, President Biden earlier than we ever have, and in a more unified way than we ever have before with NEA and SEIU and, you know, so many of our, our unions in Philadelphia, um, you know, last spring. So I guess the answer is um, we're working on it. We're working on a unified labor movement. Solidarity is solidarity. Um, working very closely with SEIU, for example, on uh, the Starbucks campaign. We have actually now embedded that campaign uh, deeply in the Federation and using our network. As you know, we have a network in every state, in every major city in this country. We're the only institution left in America that can mobilize real working people on a moment's notice. And so we're doing that day in and day out um, for campaigns like Starbucks. So um, their fights are our fights. And, um, you know, when the Teamsters win a historic uh, collective bargaining agreement with UPS, we lift up and celebrate that victory. And it you certainly did. You certainly oh, yeah. did. I really I was happy to see that you were you were tweeting and you were out on television talking about the, the Teamsters and uh, and deservedly so. Their victory is our victory. I mean, they've set the tone and now we're about you know, we're looking at UAW, all eyes on UAW. I was just with them on Labor Day in Detroit. Um, and it's a ripple effect. And it's, you know, gives us energy and inspiration and both, you know, the, the positive side of lifting that up, but also, you know, the back end of strategizing together and um, learning from each other's, um, you know, successes and, and opportunities. So I, I feel like we're there. We're, we're a movement on the rise. We're ascendant. And uh, now's the time. Okay, so I won't press you on the Teamsters, SEIU, and NEA. That's what my notes tell me I'm going to do. But I'm not going to do that because there's there's two questions I want. I'm dying to ask you. You do that in public anyway, right? So there you I go. know you're not going to. You yeah. you wouldn't tell me. It's okay. You could sort of do a head nod in one direction or another. But yeah. uh, I, I I desperately want to talk to you about politics, and we will. We're, but we're running a little shorter time. So, I, but I want to ask you this because you mentioned the UAW. How do you see that seemingly very very difficult negotiation? playing out because what what i see right i'll tell you what i see right now is uh the uaw is looking to to get back the concessions that they made in the past because the companies are doing just great now they're making billions and billions and billions of dollars in profits the reason that the union gave those concessions was to help the companies become profitable again they're here and now the union saying okay time for us to get our fair share time to get rid of all these onerous unfair rules that we were forced to agree to but I don't see the companies moving in their direction necessarily. Maybe some, 
but I don't see some so any sort of tentative or preliminary agreements happening. I, I'm not asking you to speak for President Fain or for the UAW, but what's your sense of the likelihood of success in these negotiations between the UAW and the big three? Yeah, and it's a storied relationship over many, many, many years, right? They've got a deeply um, embedded way of bargaining. And I know Sean Fain is trying to shake that up and basically let them know that um, our members are fed up. And I talked to many of them on Labor Day. Um, you know, this two-tier system that they put in place, they made the sacrifices when the company was in trouble, hoping that at one point they'd be rewarded. And here we are where they're making big investments. They've got billions of dollars in, in profits and they're looking at these joint ventures and you know, looking to expand their footprint in the EV space, and they're looking at low roading the future, and that's unacceptable. And so the the workers are saying enough is enough. And if we aren't able to put a stake in the ground now, when we have all this support and the environment is the way it is and the momentum is with us, then when will we? So um, I believe they are very serious. Uh, there could potentially be a strike. It's a last resort, Seth. You know, that's when negotiations break down. That's when the collective bargaining process, um, you know, reaches a stalemate uh, when, you know, that tool is supposed to be the tool where we sit across the table from each other, we uh, negotiate in good faith, and we reach a fair deal. And that is not happening at the moment. We are hopeful that the parties will reach a deal and they're back at it, I know, but uh, we have a little under two weeks until the deadline. And I know that the working people uh, uh, of this country, and in particular, the members of UAW are ready to do whatever it takes to get their fair share. The uh, the big question is whether the companies are hearing what the members are saying. You know, they, uh, the, we've seen a number of circumstances where tentative deals have been struck and the membership has said, no, 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 that's not what we meant. We meant something significantly better than that and you need to do better. So we're going to be interested to see sort of how that plays out. Okay, here is... The last question, then I'm going to let you go. I, I feel like I'm stealing from America's workers by taking up. But we'll charge you overtime. Yeah, <laughs> I can't afford your overtime. Yeah, right. Come on. OK, so you talked about the early endorsement to President Biden, the earliest endorsement ever by the AFL-CIO. A couple of dozen other unions have also endorsed. But, you know, I had a lot of conversations with the political directors back in 2020 and even earlier about how many members of unions voted for President Trump in 2016, and then a smaller number, but still a substantial number in 2020. How should unions communicate about all the issues we have been talking about today, given the stakes of the 2024 election? And is it possible, because my sense is that those union members are really passionate about their unions, about worker rights, about collective bargaining. They're not they're not sort of conservative Republicans when it comes to trade unions. They're headbanging, crazy screaming, we're for the union types. I had, a, I had a cousin like that who was a union plumber. There was nothing he was more passionate about other than his family than the union, but very conservative politically. Is it possible to make the right to organize and the right to bargain collectively a bridge issue for those Trump voters in 2024? Absolutely. We already know that like you said, the union is the place that really bridges the divide. It can cut through the noise. And we know we're in this era of 
misinformation, disinformation, people going down these social media rabbit holes. But when they hear from their local union business manager, they pay attention, they open their ears. And so what we're doing is engaging in the earliest than we ever have, most potent political mobilization that we've seen, uh, at least in my time that I can remember, because we're starting a 365, you know, seven days a week, 24 seven. Um, and we already post 2020 have the infrastructure in place where we've invested national resources to have organizers and trainers in the battleground states from the local union movement. We're not parachuting people in from DC. We're not, you know, sending in release staff. It's local organizers that can really connect with workers in the workplace. Uh, we've known this for a long time that the best way to cut through the noise is through an issues-based lens. So we're launching these, you know, local organizers and trainers into the workplaces um, in a particular community that have the, I think it's the, uh, we call it the target 70, which, you know, has 70% of the membership uh, so that we can talk to them about issues they care about and establish trust and actually have a two-way conversation. So we're listening, building that relationship over time so that we're not just saying vote for this person three months out of an election. It's a long-term relationship that's just not transactional. It's, it's really um, about um, you know, bringing people in and, and creating that kind of feedback loop uh, locally. So we're really excited about it. And in fact, our affiliate unions have been very much bought into this process, engaged deeply, uh, because we know too that sometimes unions can run off in different directions with their own programs. We have a unified program that is the earliest and, and most deeply engaged that we've seen in a very long time. So I'm excited, we're hopeful, but we have to unpack all of the good news. That's been the frustration is that there's a lot going on and it, it you know, takes a while to trickle down to the community level. Um, and so that's our job is we're gonna be the messengers. We're gonna be unpacking all of these great wins, all of the investments that are creating good union jobs and connecting the dots that this just didn't happen, you know, fall out of the sky. This is happening because of intentional policies and a vision of this president that is now taking place that we wanna, as he says, finish the job, right? So that's what we're gonna be doing through 2024. All right, you wanna make a prediction how it's gonna come out in 2024? We're gonna win, of course we're gonna win. And I feel, I feel more optimistic than ever because of the unity and the fact that we have all aligned together so early that it, you know, what else is there to talk about the most pro-union administration in our lifetimes? Um, so that's why we can get to work and we can start mobilizing at the community level more effectively than, you know, we normally wait, you know, until um, post-Labor Day or um, too late. So it's exciting. Okay, I'm going to take that prediction. I'm going to I'm going to come back to you the day after election day, and we're going to see if you got it right. Although I, it may take a little longer, the day after election day, we may not know the answer, so we're going to see. But let me say, I can't imagine anybody better to lead the labor movement into unity, into solidarity, and into victory than Liz Schuler. And Liz, I so appreciate your taking time to be with us today. Such a terrific discussion. Always a great one. We're going to have you back as soon as we can. But right now, because I have so many friends in that building, I don't want to lose any because I'm keeping you so long. So really appreciate you. Thanks for being here. 
I'm on my way to get lying with the Unite here. So. All right. Good luck. Thank you. And thank you for your leadership too, Seth, and for being such a supporter and friend. Well, how about that? The president of the AFL-CIO telling you how the 2024 election is going to come out. Uh, You don't even have to watch election night now. You know how it's going to come out. Um, But I hope you thought, as I did, that that was just a terrific, candid, serious interview with a very serious person. Uh, Opportunity for some laughs always with Liz Schuler because she's she's a uh, just a pleasure to be with as you can see but um, also a lot of great insights and uh, you can see the depth of commitment that she brings to working families and to working people like her parents um, uh, union members and and uh, 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 middle class folks who may who for whom unions made their life possible um, and Liz has dedicated her life to organized labor and to working people and to helping to empower working people. And I think you saw that here. Um, so as I said, there are more Labor Day blogcasts to come. The surest way for you to know about them is to subscribe to the blog. But you can also connect with us on social media, at Power at Work blog on Twitter, at Power at Work blog on threads at Power at Work blog on Instagram. Do you see a theme developing? Now on Facebook and LinkedIn, you just have to find our Power at Work page and follow the Power at Work page. But follow us on all of those social media outlets as well as, uh, I I think I mentioned Instagram. We're also on TikTok. Um, If you're inclined to TikTok, I called it Twitter. I know I'm not supposed to call it that. It's got a new name now. I just can't bring myself to say it. I don't know why. Follow us on social media, but more importantly, subscribe to the blog. That's the best way for us to keep you informed, keep you connected. Uh, and if you want to send us ideas, if there are story ideas you want to share with us, if you if you want to offer a commentary, if you, there's a blogcast you'd like to see, connect with us on social media, send us a direct message, and that'll be a really good way to do it. All right. Thank you so much for watching this Power at Work blog blogcast. We've got another one coming up really soon that I think you're not going to want to miss, a really important one. We will see you on the blog again really soon.